Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. And I'm delighted to be chairing this session because um, I'm an avid follower and participant on Twitter and I think that you can't have a discussion about mobile world and what it means culturally and socially and politically and legally without really looking at the modern exchange of opinion in a mobile context. And I have practitioners and proponents across that spectrum with me. Um, I'm not going to introduce them massively because they've got their biographies and you probably know who they are anyway. Um, First up to speak will be Will Straw. Um, Will Straw is um, now with IPPR, but he founded Left Foot Forward, which has very quickly established itself as the literally, I think, number one left-wing blog for for progressives. And uh, it's interesting to note that where left-wingery seems to have signally failed in newspapers, it seems to have signally succeeded online, and he might want to talk about that. Um, I'm also interested that Left Foot Forward talks about evidence-based blogging, and I, I don't know what that means, but he might, he might tell us. Um, uh, on, on his right, on my left, and who will speak last, is Jennifer Howes, who has created a really interesting phenomenon called uh, Cyber Mummy. And Cyber Mummy aims, as I understand it, and she'll tell us more about it, to actually start to make blogging economically viable, as well as catering for the niche that is emerging as... Um, one of the most significant niches in this whole uh, world, which is, which is women. Noam Shemtov is an expert, and what an expert. And he um, will, in fact, be speaking second after Will. He's the Leverhulme lecturer in IP and computer communications law at the Centre for Commercial Law. And I, we just want to use a phrase, his download on what this all means and what's happening and what the pitfalls are. And um, he will be uh, then followed by Kirsten Rogers, who is one of the most idiosyncratic and prolific and specialised bloggers out there. Um, I love even the name Miss Marmite Lover, um, but her blogs and her writings are much more sophisticated than they are as irreverent as that title might suggest. Um, So, without further ado, giving their little precy on what their take is on this subject, followed by a discussion... Will. Thanks very much, Julia. Um, Well, I'm I'm going to talk just about the world of politics in this um, arena of tweeting, blogging uh, and messaging uh, and how I think it's um, developed quite rapidly over a three- or four-year period and how these social media tools have become really important to the political debate in the UK, not just in Westminster, but in communities all around the country. Um, And then I'm I'm just going to relate that to something that's changing very, very rapidly at the moment because of this uh, huge scandal about the news of the world uh, and the hacking of uh, Millie Dowler's phone. And I think that's a, it's, you know, very opportune that we're having this discussion today because it's a really good example of how those social networking sites can be used by campaigners, people who are very angry about something, uh, to uh, achieve real change. Um, in, in terms of politics, the, 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 the leading blogs, um, the, the first political blogs, were really in the United States. Uh, and they came up out of anger towards George Bush. Uh, and you had 
former uh, Iraq vets like Marcus Melitzus Zuniga setting up the Daily Kos. You had the Huffington Post starting. You had blogs like Think Progress, which came out of think tanks. You had journalists setting up blogs like Talking Points Memo. Uh, and these became chroniclers of the worst excesses of George Bush's um, uh, presidency. Uh, in the UK, by um, comparison, uh, blogging started on the right wing. And that was partly, I think, out of a right-wing anger about what they saw as um, the, you know, the worst spending excesses and, and so on of the Labour government. So uh, bloggers like Ian Dale uh, and Guido Fawkes and Conservative Home really gained prominence um, in sort of 2006, 7, 8 uh, and 9. And it was only really in to the end of 2008 and the start of 2009 that uh, the left got its act together um, in the UK, partly, I think, out of response to, to what uh, they and we saw as the threat of a Conservative government and the threat of uh, the destruction of public services that we felt would come if the Conservatives got in. Um, and so that meant that there were um, several blogs that started up around that period. And I think that there was a, a subtle difference between the blogs of the left and the blogs of the right. The blogs of the right, particularly Guido Fawkes and Ian Dale, had focused on Westminster tittle-tattle, gossip, um, you know, little tidbits. In Guido's case, a bit of muckraking as well. You know, and, and, and they got lots of traffic for that. People were interested in it. Uh, and um, you start to think that the real conversation about politics was taking place online rather than offline and very successful. Um, on the left, um, I think people wanted to um, talk instead a bit more about campaigns, a bit more about policy, uh, and so some of the blogs were a bit more serious in tone. And I think that meant that there was less traffic, but it also meant that they uh, had you know, some sort of seriousness to them. Uh, and the traffic hasn't been inconsequential. So um, Liberal Conspiracy, the main sort of campaigning blog, uh, gets sort of um, 60 to 100,000 unique visitors uh, a month. We're about the same. Last year we had half a million unique visitors over the course of 2010 at Left Foot Forward. And then there's a range of other blogs like Next Left and Labour List uh, that have slightly smaller numbers, but still pretty dedicated following. But the big thing that was different was the use of social media. Uh, I think the left is more... Um, sort of communitarian in spirit than the right. So the sort of the, the, the groups that built up around it using social media really took off. Uh, you know, first with Facebook and, and, and later with Twitter. And it's, um, I, think, I find it interesting that 20% of the traffic to uh, Left Foot Forward comes from either Facebook or Twitter, people sharing links that they find interesting. And I know that's, that's the case for, um, for other uh, sites as well. And then, of course, you get convergence, and everyone's got Facebook, Twitter, and uh, the ability to browse the web uh, as well as receive emails on their phone. So people are online the whole time, and if they're not engaging with Facebook, they're engaging with Twitter, they're sharing links, they're sharing opinion on stories. Things fly around much more quickly than they ever did before. And I think you'll see that proportion of traffic coming from Facebook and Twitter uh, going up as more and more people uh, get online. So um, what does that mean in practice? Well, at 4.30 on Monday, The Guardian broke this story that uh, Millie, Dowler, uh, Millie Dowler's phone had been hacked by the News of the World. I think it was something that uh, you know, had been documented before, but people didn't know the full extent of the story. It very quickly took off on Twitter. And unlike the kind of hacking of politicians or Hugh Grant or Sienna Miller, this was something that hit people very viscerally, made people very angry. So it stopped being a conversation that people in politics cared about and became a story that people uh, in the whole country cared about. Uh, and little surprise that it led the BBC News, both on Monday night and last night, led the Today programme in the morning. It's been on the front of the Evening Standard uh, and the Metro, as well as all the broadsheets. Um, 
even the Daily Mirror, who didn't cover it on the first day, perhaps not wanting to go too hard on their tabloid competitors, but also, you know, the kind of brotherhood of uh, tabloid skullduggery. Uh, but uh, this morning they felt um, compelled to, to cover the potential hacking of the um, and alleged hacking of the Soham, uh, Soham uh, uh, murders. Um, but what, what's happened with social media? Well, some very interesting things very quickly. Um, yesterday morning, um, I tweeted, Rebecca Brooks must go, and then the hashtag, Rebecca Brooks must go. Um, it took off, had um, several hundred people retweeting it. It trended briefly uh, as one of the top ten trending uh, topics on, on, on the UK. Um, a face, several Facebook groups have been set up. There's, there's not been one yet that people have coalesced around. Uh, there's a sort of interesting side argument here about whether you set up a Facebook group or a page. You can do more with a Facebook page. The leading one at the moment with about 1,500 followers. So not that many, but it may take off, uh, is, a, is a Facebook group called Boycott News of the World. Um, there's then been a lot of activity by email from campaigners and bloggers. Uh, and um, there's, there's a phone around going around today with bloggers of the left mainly phoning up advertisers saying, are you going to be um, advertising in this week's News of the World? Some of you will have heard that Ford pulled out. I just had a conversation with the guy who's leading this, who runs the Political Scrapbook website, and he says that uh, Co-op Group, Coca-Cola and Body Shop uh, are all likely to, um, to pull out of advertising. The Nat- NatWest have said they're not advertising in the next edition of the News of the World. Renault, Cadbury's and Debenham say no advertising is planned. Uh, Procter & Gamble say they're concerned and are reviewing the situation, and only Morrisons of these big advertisers have confirmed so far they will be advertising in this week's News of the World. So this pressure has built up, shared on Twitter, shared on Facebook. These companies know it's serious because of the volumes, and then you've got activists and campaigners phoning up these uh, organisations and putting them on, on the spot. I think that's a radically different way of campaigning. It's very fast-paced. It's being documented online uh, all the time. But it shows how these things really can uh, capture a moment. Thank you. So the phrase, the personal is political, is maybe replaced by the social is political. So um, you're advocating in a way that social change happens less by the march than by the, um, what Neil Stewart calls the electronic mob. Noam, what are you teaching your students and what's your view on all of this? Well, I, I thought I'll say um, um, just a few words, uh, give a soft legal angle. Um, and, and I mean, the theme today is mobile technology and the way it affects opinions and information. And, and uh, the thing which we must uh, take into account, I guess, in this context is what are the barriers to uh, the dissemination of information and opinion as far as, 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 as the law is concerned. And, and uh, in, in, in that context, just a few words, and I'm distinguishing between information and content. Um, as far as information is concerned, uh, against common belief, at least shared by some of us, uh, copyright law doesn't regulate the dissemination of information at all. Uh, Information, when I'm talking about information, I'm talking about data, I'm talking about facts, and even about the interpretation of these. Um, And as far as this is concerned, um, information is concerned, uh, copyright stays out of the game. Uh, There are two main branches of law that may have something to say about the dissemination of information, uh, and that is the law of confidentiality. And that would take place either when we have an agreement where both parties sign and you have something like a non-disclosure clause, uh, or sometimes the courts step in and say, although there is no agreement, we 
would imply an obligation of confidence due to the specific circumstances of the case, and we would curb any dissemination of information of that nature. Uh, the second branch of law is data protection legislation that we have in this country. So the, the, and all around Europe, Data Protection Act, if you have a person, whether a natural or a legal person, who is a data controller, and the information in question is personal information, or, or better still, uh, um, sensitive uh, personal information, uh, and uh, personal information, sensitive personal information are things like political opinions, uh, sexual preferences, um, ethnicity, race, and so on. Uh, these uh, data controllers under these circumstances uh, are also under certain obligations that the law imposes on them uh, with respect to dissemination of such information. But I think, well, slightly more interesting is the question of content. Uh, and we talked about politics. Uh, uh, Will was, was, was uh, um, referring uh, to, 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 to politics in the blogosphere uh, just a minute ago. And um, we all consume news. A recent study shows that uh, in the U.S., 65% uh, of, um, uh, of people get some of the news on the web. I believe that the number should be quite similar uh, here and in some other countries. Now, where do we get our news on the web. Uh, of course, we have the, the, the traditional providers, so uh, newspapers so in this country, uh, Mail Online, Times, and so on. Uh, but we also go to what is known as news aggregators. News aggregators, uh, there are a number of types of news aggregators, so think about uh, what, is known, what is known as feed aggregators, these Yahoo News and Google News. Think about speciality aggregators, think like TechMeme, um, eh, or eh, our block. Think about user-curated aggregators, uh, websites like Dig, and think about uh, the Huffington Post, the blog aggregators. All of them use third-party content. Most of them use it at least in the following manner. They take the title of an article, which is generated and written by a third party, and they take the first few lines of the lead of the article and provide it on their website with a hyperlink to the third party's website where you can read the full article. Now, the question is, can they do that? Can they take, without authorization, the title? Can they take the first few lines? And the answer to that is, uh, it depends where you ask this question. Because you would get a different answer if you ask this question in the US, if you ask this question in this country, we ask this question, for example, in Belgium. Uh, it, it's very much jurisdiction-based, uh, um, if, 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 if you would like. And, and I guess it's, the system is most flexible. In the U.S., uh, there was a recent report that was published here just um, a month and a half ago, in May, uh, the Hargreaves report commissioned by uh, the conservative, well, the coalition uh, government, um, with a view to look at the copyright exceptions to copyright law in this country and whether we should imitate what's going on in the U.S. with their very broad catch-all fair use exception to copyright law. Uh, and the recommendations are, I mean, in, in a snapshot of the recommendation, we should uh, get the system here um, towards the situation in the U.S. that is more flexible, but probably we should not follow it all the way and provide something which is akin to the fair use exception. And, 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 and um, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's still, the whole thing is still work in progress. Thank you. Can I just ask you before we move on to Kirsten, 
how significant in your view was the way that Twitter challenged the super injunction? Do you think we will come and look at that historically in terms of the law and in terms of values as a key moment or not particularly? Are there lots and lots of other examples in which um, these very blurred lines are, are being challenged? I, th I think it played a, a part, a not insignificant part, but there were a lot of voices um, prior to the challenge uh, that were suggesting that some of the judges... Uh, and I won't mention names, uh, in this uh, country, in, yes, uh, in, are, are taking it too, just too, too far. Are their, their hand on the trigger is just too easy in terms of just uh, imposing this blanket super uh, in, in, in injunction. Uh, and, and that also has to do with, as far as data protection and even defamation law is concerned, uh, there, there is a political discussion and this is very... In, 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 yeah, sorry. Well, no, it's just my point finally is that five years ago it, 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 it wouldn't matter if a, if a judge imposed a super injunction because nobody would really be able to challenge it other than a newspaper, whereas five months ago, five weeks ago, they came madly unstuck because of one particular social medium, which was Twitter. So we'll, maybe we'll come back to that whole thing about the, the limits and power of the law. But thank you. Um, Kirsten, are you, tell us about the blogging, tell us about the tweeting... Give us your perspective, please. Um, well, I mean, following on what Noam just said, I, I think uh, blogging and tweeting has democratised um, communication. Uh, you now lo no longer have to be rich or a big business to have a PR or marketing, or you don't have to be, you know, Oxbridge candidate or Oxbridge graduate to write for a newspaper. Anyone can say, you know, what they feel. And I think a lot of old media have problems with new media and criticise it. And um, Nick Davis, I went to one of his talks, he wrote Flat Earth News, and he, you know, was very concerned about new media because obviously it's very difficult to monetize it. Um, and it's stopping people get work. Um, but the fact is, uh, really, that's an objection to new writers in some ways and new voices. And it's just trying to, you know, hog, hog the old me hold, hog the me means of communication. And I think that's, uh, that's quite worrying. Uh, I mean, th there has to be a way with blogging, there has to be a way of earning a living. I mean, obviously, journalists, photographers, my training actually was as a photographer, and it's very difficult to make a living as a photographer, and that's why I became a chef and blogger. <laughs> uh, I mean, a lot of what I do, actually, I don't get paid for. Um, I mean, I blog a lot simply because I like it. Um, it's less lonely than writing. I wrote a book that came out in, um, in April. I find the experience of writing a book very lonely and isolating, and, whereas blogging's great. You get people's feedback, you get opinion. You know, that's, that's really enjoyable. And tweeting, I mean, you know, even more so, it's very rapid. Um, my, how I earn money, and that is the big problem for most people in the media, is by um, having a real-world business, not just virtual business. So, you know, you're blogging, you're tweeting, you're doing all that stuff, you're Facebooking, but you've got to have a kind of bricks-and-mortar business of some kind. And me, it's the supper club, um, making food, which has also been a means of gathering people together. Um, often I'll have a whole table, because I do large mixed tables, uh, you don't book a table for my supper club, my living room restaurant. Um, you, you, know, you sit with whoever. And sometimes you'll have a whole table of people, Twitterers, who've never met each other in real life before. So it's a great way of turning the virtual into the real.
that's a way of making a living. I mean, food writing, which seems to have become my speciality. I have three blogs, two of them about food um, and travel a little bit. The, my, but my first, my first blog was actually uh, called Travels with My Teenager, and it was about living in London, bringing up my teenage daughter uh, in London, um, protest. Uh, I was talking to Will about the kind of protest that I was involved with, which was called Pink Block, Tactical Frivolity, and in a way, um, <laughs> which, is, which was the kind of party version of the Black Block. Uh, we tend to wear pink and glitter and we go in on protests and did samba and clowning. But actually, that's kind of moved to um, Twitter and social media with UK Uncut. Um, so I talked a lot about that, but now I mostly talk about food. And constantly, when I meet you know, established food writers, they're all you know, really worried because they can't get work, they can't, well, they can't get paid work. Everybody wants their work. They can't get paid for anything. And obviously, I understand they see us you know, who are writing about everything for free several times a week. They're thinking, well, you know, what am I going to do? I mean, some of them are even starting their own blogs as maybe for a way of expressing themselves, for the stuff they can't get published, the quirky stuff. So it is very enjoyable for everybody. But, you know, how to earn a living in this climate is one of the big problems. Can I just ask you, though, is it... That's one issue which I'm sure we'll come back to and which Jennifer will address, is, is, is the uh, business case, the business model. Um, but what I'm interested in is this endlessly spawning... Um, set of voices. So I noticed that the last two pieces you wrote for Comment is Free both attracted 100 comments. Now, those 100 comments are essentially anonymous. And effectively, apart from the fact that you've chosen to become public, Ms Marmite Lover is not a name in a telephone directory. (laughs) So what does that say about the bandwidth to perhaps be more political or more active or say things under cloak of anonymity? Well, obviously, we had this recent case of that guy who pretended to be a a lesbian Syrian activist, and he turned out to be some... Did he pretend to be Syrian as well as lesbian? I I think think he he might be actually Syrian. But, yes. Uh, He's uh, he's an American bloke in Scotland who's married, you know. So, I mean, obviously... I mean, it, it was really awful, actually, because... Anonymity is quite important, especially if you're an activist, especially if you're talking about quite dangerous stuff. I suppose I started off... um, I chose a a blogging name, a pen name, um, because um, I was writing about quite personal things um, in the public domain, and I was quite nervous uh, about, you know... I mean, some of the stuff I wrote about was quite, you know, risky. (laughs) Like what? Oh, I wrote about dodgy dates and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wrote about... I went to an orgy. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Which was very personal. interesting. And I wrote about it in a, quite a... You know, I just want to say I didn't participate. I was too much of a wimp. Um, but <laughs> it was a very interesting experience. And I just wrote about it quite clinically, you know, literally an observational documentary, uh, almost in blog post form. But, so it was kind of scary. To, I thought I'd attract a load of freaks. But um, <laughs> So that's why I started, you know, anonymously. But when my book came out, I basically had to sort of come out of the digital closet and say who I was. And, um, <laughs> uh, but, and, and now, I mean, also, really, what I, I'm doing about with the living room restaurant, the home restaurant, is I'm inviting complete strangers that I've never met before. They can book online through my blog into my home. So I'm taking huge risks. But you know what? Um, 
very few mad axe murderers in this world. You mostly can trust people. Um, you know, any, a bad thing can happen to anyone in the real world as in the virtual world. You obviously, you have to be careful. But, you know, so I am pushing the boundaries with that a little bit all the time. So there's a whole new class of interaction and a whole new behave, set of behaviour codes that are coming out from what you're describing in more ways than one. I don't know, last time I was invited to view an orgy, I wasn't. So you're obviously hanging out in different social spaces to me. <laughs> to be continued. Jennifer, tell us about Cyber Mummy and let's talk a little bit about this monetizing question. Okay. Um, so I am co-founder of both... Cyber Mummy, which we just had our second conference a week and a half ago here in London. About 400 delegates there, um, all parent bloggers, predominantly women. I'd say 99.5% women, but some, some dads there as well. And I'm also co-founder of Brit Mums, which is a social network for uh, parent bloggers. Right now, that's a closed network we're relaunching soon to have both a an area where bloggers can just talk to them each other, and then an open area where everybody can see, join in conversations, um, watch videos that they're putting out, basically kind of find out what mum bloggers and dad bloggers are talking about and engage with them. Um, so this idea of how to make your blog sustainable. Most people, well, people get into blogging, we find our members, for all kinds of reasons. Um, Blogging as therapy, blogging as a calling, blogging as a creative outlet. Um, we did a survey of Brit Mums members, and um, basically, I think something like 78% had had a job before they started blogging, and something like 62% still worked. So there wasn't, it's not the, I think there's this uh, reputation for a mum blogger to be a kind of you know, stay-at-home mom uh, who's writing about changing nappies. And that's not really what we see. Um, and mum blogging also, um, just to give you a bit of definition, like we consider that kind of an umbrella term. We've got people who we'd say, yes, they're a mum blogger, they write about travel. They're a mum blogger, they write about education. They're a mum blogger, they write about... Um, writing and you know trying to get their novel published or whatever, so um, so that's that's kind of the audience that uh, we deal with, and we had some sessions at Cyber Mummy basically dealing with this idea of monetization, <coughs> and um, it's not for everyone, and that's an important thing to remember. Some people really want to do it, some people couldn't care less, and. But when you think about monetizing, mainly people think about it, I think right now, as I engage with a brand. Um, in the U.S. is very big. Of You have brand ambassadors. So you know, whoever craft or has some brand ambassadors that they either pay or they um, basically give freebies to. And... Um, that's basically how these bloggers are remunerated. And what we're trying to do is promote a more kind of value exchange between bloggers and brands who want to engage with each other. Um, I think brands and bloggers have gotten away from this idea of sponsored post. It's feeling really like five years ago. Um, nobody reads them. It drives people away from your blog. Bloggers feel like you know their blog is their brand. Their 
their publishers, and you know they want to keep their themselves happy and their readers happy, and so they can be very um, guarded about what they put up. And so increasingly, people have gotten away from sponsored posts. And um, in terms of brands, we're looking to promote and this kind of longer-term integration, where um, where brands work long-term with bloggers in creating content that's focused around an editorial theme. So the blogger writes what they want to write, but they are supported by a brand, and the brand is it's not inserted into the conversation. But, like, for example, a um, blogger might, a, a brand might want to do some videos around a topic of eating right, as an example. And so the blogger is commissioned to do content around that, and then that... Um, that conversation, that video or whatever, is bookended by pre-roll, but good pre-roll, not that kind of like you have to sit through this ad that's really boring before you get to what you want to see. Um, so anyway, brand engaging with brands is one way to monetize, but increasingly we see the people who are really monetizing their blog successfully are doing it by working. By, by making money with their blog, not via their blog. So the blog is a cornerstone of a suite of things they're doing. So they might also be consulting. They might also be running a restaurant. <laughs> they might also be uh, writing a book or selling e-books or um, offering courses. So is anybody actually making money specifically and solely from a blog, do you think? Well, there, yeah, I mean, there are bloggers out there, but I think they tend to be the massive ones um, I mean, in America, you know some... Sponsorship is probably the way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I'm trying to get going is... Because I also have a, a group site for supper clubs around the world. And I've, for instance, just done a deal with my Dijon Mustard, who are going to sponsor the blog. Um, and I'm going to do a supper club for them, and they're going to have their badge on the blog. We're running competitions. Um, obviously, you know... Part of it, the most important thing in social media is authenticity and integrity, mm. um, and which is quite why it's quite hard for large corporations to blog and tweet and Facebook uh, unless they happen to be known for their authenticity and integrity. <laughs> so when I choose to <laughs> do work do. with Dijon Mustard, it's because it's a product I love and it's something everyone can use, um, and it's. Um, it's not a ready meal, because often I've been approached by like ready meal type stuff. And the whole point about doing you know, a supper club is you cook everything from scratch. So you know, there's ways and ways of doing it. You've got to choose your product, and they've got to trust you. The people on my site have got to trust my decisions. But is it not also that you're in, you know, Kirsten is in a pretty individual space. Yeah. She's, she's in a niche within a niche, and she has a very particular take, and she's managed to produce this suite, mm-hmm. how, how can women who are all coming at a suite of the same issues from different perspectives mm-hmm. ever going to you know, carve out enough of an audience? That's, to me, the question mm-hmm. you know, that Mumsnet trailblazed, arguably, in terms of... Wi- the mums, they've now branched out into a much wider... They, they are a major political force now, mums, Ned. But 
how can an individual woman tweeting about, blogging about her issues say, well, I'm really fundamentally different from the other 59 posting this hour? Yeah, well, we do have, you know, there's some bloggers out there who they just blog about anything. They blog about their life. Um, I think the number one ranked mum blogger in the UK right now, uh, her blog's called Sticky Fingers. Her name's Tara Kane. That she just blogs whatever she wants. But one thing that came out of a discussion we had at Cyber Mummy was that, in general, the people who are getting some traction with finding ways to monetize, finding ways to make their blog their, their kind of life, are the people who are being very niche. So we've got you know, someone like Red Ted Art, uh, Maggie runs this blog, and it, she started it as a, a blog about crafting with her son, and now she's kind of become, in the space of, I'd say, nine months maybe, she's become the blog everybody knows that has great ideas. Um, we run, at Brit Mums, we run Twitter parties with brands around this idea of engaging in an authentic way, so around an editorial conversation um, what are your ideas for fates, for example? And um, a brand would come in, P&G came in on that and wanted to sponsor that conversation about moms sharing tips about their fates, um, planning a fate, and how to make money with it. So uh, Maggie also did a Twitter party with a brand, and I can't remember the brand, but it was something you know that you would use for crafting. Okay. And okay. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think for people to, it's, it's not just putting up your blog and being great. And I think that there was a really interesting conversation a few years back. It's like, is good writing enough? Good writing isn't enough anymore to be recognized. Um, you've got to have a little more, and you've got to be engaged, and you've got to be doing the Facebook and the Twitter and, the, and everything else. But they love it. But so it's I not also a thought that blogging was kind of over. I mean, Will, what is your view? I thought we were not reading blogs anymore. I thought we were reading tweets. I thought everything had condensed down, speeded up. So, I mean, politically, where's the money? Is it on the blogs or is it on the tweets? Or what, you know, well, what, what mobilises? I mean, I can only tell you what Google Analytics tells me, and Google Analytics tells me that there are more people reading Left Foot Forward uh, than there were last month and the month before. Yeah. Traffic goes up. Um, so, I mean, that, you know, that tells me that, uh, you know, it, it, people are reading blogs. What I think social media does is, in many cases, people are sharing links. You know, they're shorting a link using Bitly and then sharing it. And it's so it's driving traffic to your blog. So although, for a lot of people, the conversation starts and ends reading the, the tweet, which perhaps summarises the story, uh, many others will click on the link. So I think, you know, you, you may have fewer people going directly to sites because they've bookmarked them but you've got more and more people who use an RSS feed like Google Reader and scan through it and are reading things through that and then clicking on the ones they're really interested in, scanning Facebook and, uh, and Twitter. I mean, in our case for fundraising, we have a sort of volunteer army of writers from think tanks, campaigning groups, NGOs and so on uh, who write voluntarily for us. And we have a central team of two permanent staff. So our overheads in a year are about 70 or 80,000. How we've raised that funding... Um, we started off by, um, and we've still got, some philanthropic supporters who've written cheques, 5,000, 10,000 here and there. We've had some support from the trade unions. 
Uh, but we've built up over time a mixture of standing orders. So we now have a much wider group of people who are giving you know, 10, 20, 50 pounds a month. And now I'm working somewhere else. I now give a standing order to left foot forward towards its running cost. So we're building up that base. Any of you want to talk to me about that afterwards? Delighted <laughs> to have that conversation. Um, and we're also doing more with advertising. And it's exactly uh, the model that Kirsten talks about. We, uh, during the AV campaign, um, the Yes to AV campaign, took out an ad on our site for uh, a month. Didn't do a lot of good in the end. But uh, it was very much within the ethos of what we were doing. We were pushing for the Yes campaign. It must be harder with a political blog, though, because obviously with food, it's quite obvious who would want to promote you. I mean, what products are associated with politics? Well, I think you work with the campaigning groups and NGOs. So I think you work with those people already in your space. And and you can work with, um, you know, uh, companies that are, um, you know, I mean, there are things like, uh, I don't suppose we'll get advertising from them, but Facebook, for example, Mm. or Apple, companies that, you know, are very much about the kind of medium that you're in, I think would be very good. But one of the things that, I mean, we're going to throw open any minute now to the floor. One of the things that I'm observing is is, is a... is a, is a sense of opposites between, on the one hand, we're talking about the individual, the voice, the brand, the uniqueness, the partnership, the proposition that drives people to whatever form of social medium it is. But what it seems to me defines and underpins all of this is the right to, if not the practice of, anonymity. You don't have to use your own identity your own individuality in the way that if you're in a broadcast interview, there's no disguising it, in a way that if you're in mainstream media, uh, what Guido Fawkes memorably called the, the, the dead tree press, you cannot avoid the signposting with great exception and the only um, systematised exception is the economists' unsigned leaders. So what is your view, Will, about that? Why do we need anonymity, mm. apart from you know, very occasional yeah. moments of national security? Yeah. Why is the culture of anonymity still so prevalent? Well, well, I'm not a great supporter of the culture of anonymity. I think people should be... Um, you know, Am I over-egging it, or is it still pretty dominant? Uh, well, I mean, on Left Foot Forward, we have one person who writes anonymously, and they write anonymously because they're a civil servant. Uh, and, I mean, you know, they would probably be sacked if... Uh, you know, they were, um, uh, if they said who they were. Um, but they write very, very good pieces about a particular policy area and give great insights. Uh, and they're not particularly partisan, actually, but, but we agreed that in that exceptional circumstance right. we would let them write under a pseudonym. We, we don't like doing that as a rule. Um, the problem often is that WordPress, which is the platform that we use for Left Foot Forward, for the comments section, uh, it, has, it, it, it um, doesn't have much functionality. You either have to have people have a login so that every time they want to put a comment, they have to log in to your site. And some sites do do that, and that can mean that you can verify that their email address is who they say they are and insist that they are who they say they are. And maybe we should move to that. I think it's a conversation we, we should have. Um, or you just let anyone turn up, put a name and an email address, but they can make up the email address, they can make up the name. Uh, but then you generate more conversation. You know, I mean, th- there are others, and I suspect Kirsten will have a, a, a different perspective on this, but my view has been, particularly in politics, that you should have the courage of your convictions and you should be willing to say who you say you are. And you certainly shouldn't be able to hurl abuse okay. uh, behind a cloak of anonymity. Well, no, no, I'd like you to comment briefly on this before we throw it open. I mean... Actually, there was another civil servant who's lost his job in the last week because he was, he was discovered, his identity was discovered, and he was tweeting as naked civil servant, I think, on Twitter. Presumably, uh, technology is outstripping the legal desire or citizen desire for anonymity. 
what's that going to do to the law? Well, I think it's, it's, it's always been the case that we are playing catch-up with, with technology, whether it is this area or, or uh, other areas. This is why I actually think that rather than have a strict set of rules as to what we can or we cannot do, because we can never really uh, foresee what's coming up in terms of technology, uh, the best solution, and that's my personal view, is to have something which is, which is quite flexible. So rather than have rules where you have to, in order to do certain things, you have to tick boxes, have a set of normative values. And this is something which is quite akin to what you do have in, in the U.S. under this thing which is called f fair, fair use for general principles. And you have to trust your judiciary, of course, in order to give them such a discretionary uh, uh, power. And that's another question. But uh, I, I think that when you have that, uh, you, you allow the courts, if it, did, it, it does go all the but way I to mean, the court, to But, I mean, what's the normative value? Because the right to say Rebecca Brooks must go is an, is an opinion. It's not a fact. It's not even... A, a, a correct or an incorrect position. It's a view. It's a campaigning point. So where's the normative value I mean, in, in the right to tweet that? Uh, in the US, well, even if you agreed with it, in this, and uh, if you disagreed with it, with with with, with respect to uh, to content of that nature. <clears throat> what they do have there is, and that's something different. Is, is they have this principle which is called newsworthiness. If it's newsworthy. You can take it out to the open, even if you hurt people on the way. Uh, if it's newsworthy, and that comes all the way from, you know, First Amendment and so on. But if you have the... the, the, the does newsworthy also, does it just mean to everybody, for example, everybody in the UK, or does it mean newsworthy within a certain group of people? No, I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, there was a very famous case here, 2004, the Naomi Campbell case, right? Uh, Naomi Campbell is a drug addict, and, 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 and the, the, the case went all the way to the House of Lords. In the U.S., this would have stopped very, very early. Yes, it may damage Miss Campbell, but it's newsworthy. Discussion stops there. Let me, let me give another normative uh, example. Um, uh, many of you will be familiar with Comments is Free and, and read it. I mean, I, I think, uh, particularly having written for it, that the, you know, the, the, the commenters on Comments is Free are just a kind of mad rabble. Uh, and it's a, you know, I mean, it, you don't get any sense out of the comments except in one or two examples. And it's actually, a, you know, sort of deeply intimidating and unpleasant thing to re, you know, read the comments that follow your so piece. So there's can be, too much opinion. Yeah, uh, there's too much opinion. It's anonymised. It's personal. Uh, interestingly, if you do go in and respond to some Should of the comments... Should the Guardian ditch the comments? Well, I've had lots of conversations free. with them about this. I think they got it wrong at the start by having um, a process where they just let anything go uh, and then occasionally they would go in and post-moderate, so they would take out some comments. What we said at Left at Forward when we set this up, and I think it has created a comment environment with much less volume of comments, but it's a, it's a much more um, sort of welcoming, engaged community. We said, um, play the ball, not the man. Don't get personal with people. Have a debate about the, uh, the, the topic, the policy, the conversation. But, you know, be, be strong in your opinions, but, but do don't attack the writer. It, as a blogger, when people uh, write abusive comments, I don't even care anymore. But, is but, that... but, why, but why is that? Why have we come to a position where we're accepting people hurling abuse? If, if half the people in this room were sort of shouting at us and you know, calling us names and questioning our parentage and that kind of thing, you know, we, we wouldn't turn up to these kind of events. So why is it that in the blogosphere we've come to accept, because the norm was set by commenters free, that it's fine to have people hurling abuse at you? I don't think it's right. I think 
the Guardian should have been qu quicker to change the approach that they had to their commenters, seeing themselves because they were right at the forefront of that shift in comment and taken a different policy. We we've shown at a much smaller site, admittedly, that you can have a different culture. I isn't think these norms, these norms it, are really Isn't important. it also, though, financial in the same way that you say you've got two paid staff and the rest are voluntary? I mean, it would cost the Guardian a lot... They already do have moderators. They do have moderators, but it would actually cost them a lot if they editorially picked which comments to use. Well, with the, about... with the Guardian, you do actually have to set up a login. To you do, on the but then so you... Why, so why and then not... they read it and scan right, it, So why not verify? For... It's very, you know, why not yeah. verify? It's a proper email address and there's a proper name so my... associated about, with I, it. Excuse me, I have to jump in here. It's an, I don't think it's about whether people are actually putting in a real email or whatever. I mean, also, we know it's so easy. Even, I could go create a real email somewhere and still not be who I say I am. I think it's much more about what the moderators are doing or what the owner of that website, the kind of conversation that they are, they are encouraging and also discouraging. And it, does, it is a question of resources. It's, it's, just one comment on that. It's, it's quite interesting in the sense that if you do take the role and moderate it in advance, you are actually exposing yourself to certain risks. I mean, there is a safe, a, safe, a safe harbor kind of area where if you don't touch anything and you just deal with it, you know, it's, 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 it's post-moderation, then you can say you didn't know about it at the, at, the, at the time when it was posted and therefore you're not liable for whatever, you know, defamation or libel. But if you do it in advance, you, you, you may have constructive knowledge. And so, so you're actually better, better off putting your hands in the pocket than just... the yeah. publisher is responsible yeah. for the content yeah. of the comments yeah. as well. Yeah. Okay, so hang two, on. There's two points, yes. isn't there? Sorry, very quickly. There's yes. two points. One is about whether people are... whether you're allowing people to... Um, blog um, comments anonymously, and that you can deal with by forms of pre-moderation. You don't get around all the issues, I agree, but you can make it much harder for people. The second is about abuse, and there I think, and, and, and libel, and there I think post-moderation is the only way. But there's two separate issues at hand. Okay, so we're going to throw it open to the floor. Hands up, everybody who's on Facebook. It's actually be better to do it the other way. Who's not on Twitter? Who's on Google Plus that launched last week? Yeah, could someone explain it to me, please, because I'm trying and failing as well. Um, so we're all in that space. Who's got a blog? All right. Is there anybody not engaging on point of principle or because they're very, very, very old-fashioned with anything at all modern? <laughs> right, good. All right, so we're all in the game. So I want your comments, uh, and I want you to say who you are and what your view is, and I'm going to... Pick on you if you don't speak. So, come on. Who wants to go first? Gentleman over there. And Andy Matheson from DTC. I, I just amused myself this week. I, I went to a, a meeting and collected business cards. And I went back to my desk and thought, I'll just put them in my computer, my contact list. And my first thought was, who's on LinkedIn? Who's on Twitter? And when I found some people who weren't, and they were people I might work with, I thought, oh, they're no good then. And I wonder how true that is. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so you kind of have to be a player now. Is that, is that right, Jan? I have to say, I, I think that... I think there's a bit of a bias, especially among those of us who've been online and blogging and everything for a while, where we think, you know, oh, everybody's on, and if somebody's not on, it's like, like, you know, get a computer, dude, you know? Come on, log on. But in fact, um, I know a lot of people um, who are very clued in, you know politically, socially, who are like, yeah, I've been thinking about getting a Twitter account. So I have a, and I think this speaks also to your question of is blogging over. I think, you know, influencers, early adopters, um, lots of people have really gotten into it. And now it's going 
it's spreading wider and mainstream, and we're going to have a second wave of that. But definitely, people we know in our blogging community, when people start blogs now, they start with everything. They've got their Twitter account. They've got their Facebook page. They've got their LinkedIn page. They've got their Facebook fan page, so their personal one, and then also their fan page. And they're doing, and they're linked all up. They're doing their networked blogs. They're doing their Google, you know, Connect. They're. Friend connect I mean, when or whatever. my book came out, because actually I, t- I have a Facebook group, The Underground Restaurant, if you'd like to like it. Um, <laughs> and uh, when I, my book came out, is um, I realised actually I should use the Facebook group more often for updates, which feeds straight through to my Twitter, because one in six of the population are on Facebook. And uh, I don't know what... I know it's 175 million people in the world are on Twitter, but I'm not sure what the UK statistics are for that. OK, more points, please. Sorry, I'm Anne Akers from DTC. Um, I think there is a much larger part of the population who still don't realise the business implications of of tweeting. So they they think it's something silly that they should, you know, and I think that point was made earlier. I was was at a conference earlier this week uh, with a professor who was making some uh, great statements about things and I went to tweet about some of that and I didn't know his tweet address and I just named it with a hashtag and afterwards I spoke to him and said I've just tweeted you might be pleased and he looked at me and said well what's that and that was really interesting and when I talked to him about it you know I could see him making notes thinking I have to do something about this because he could see the commercial advantage Uh, I think that you know we're a community here who who perhaps are kind of um, smaller than we think in some ways in the business world but in is, terms of the commercial aspects. Is it right that just because it exists, you should use it? So it comes back to Kirsten's point about authenticity, and it comes back to the point that all of you who've answered in the affirmative, you all will use one of those mediums more than another. So I, I really think, only use Twitter. Well, I'm on Facebook, that, but yes. I can't do both. At any one time. Him, so why he, should a business well, I all, think he all businesses use Twitter? to realise the commercial opportunity for him. He sells things. He sells books. He sells all sorts of things. And what he realised in that moment was that he was missing a commercial opportunity. And he absolutely was. And, a, and, a, and an opportunity to be quoted, actually, uh, because he is, a, he is a leading person in his field. And I think he suddenly realised there was an outlet, really, for him to be quoted and for his views to be more okay. broadly known. Thank you. Noam, you yeah. wanted to come back in on that? Yeah. Um, Do I don't have a Twitter account. I mean, I know about Twitter, right? So it's not, it's not as bad as the professor that you were describing. It's a conscious decision. Uh, and I, 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 I uh, attribute it... Uh, I mean, what, what one academic was referring to as... A, IFS, information fatigue syndrome, information overload. I, I, I don't want to multitask to such an extent. I have other things uh, to do. So I do my, and, and, and I'm not very good at multitasking, I must, I must confess too. So, so, so uh, too much of a good thing can be. And, and information and access to information is a good thing, but, but I think there comes a time for, for each of us at a, certain, at a different point where, where you do have to or you might just and will there's obviously for politicians a big danger in the trigger happy nature of tweet tweeting well, or facebooking many a kind of political yeah. graveyard has formed have they not well i mean it has but i think it's common sense i mean you know you, th- th- these are open forums don't tweet stuff that you wouldn't want to have repeated don't do it when you're drunk you know there's some sort of <laughs> there's some sort of simple lessons here but i think we we've got to see this you know that there's a difference if you're a consumer to if you're a producer 
If you're a consumer, the, um, Andrew, I think, you know, was talking about, you know, should you just discard people who are not on LinkedIn and Twitter? No, I think it's personal choice. You know, I have accounts on Facebook, LinkedIn and Twitter, but I concentrate on Twitter. Very rarely use LinkedIn. Uh, and actually, my, you know, I use Facebook about once a fortnight now. Um, so, you know, I'm much more focused on that. If you're a producer, you have to have a presence because you have to go to where people are. And that's the absolute critical lesson. There are so many new channels, so many new mediums where people are taking place in debate. Some of them will be entirely offline and some people will choose to be entirely offline. Okay. We all know people who've chosen not to be on Facebook. So if you're, a, if you're a producer, if you're someone selling goods, you've got to find those people through different channels. Good, thank you. Going back to the orgy analogy of Kirsten's, I always think these sessions... It's a bit like sort of there's a warm-up period and then suddenly everyone's really swung in and we're all, we're all happening now. We all want to say what we feel. <laughs> Sasha, over here. <laughs> My name's Sachi. I'm a freelance media consultant and I actually just spent the past uh, six-plus months at The Guardian researching their commenting and community platforms, specifically how users come to engage below the line with the journalists. So obviously authenticity and uh, the size of the commenting platform are two key issues I think everyone's well aware of. And I'm just interested to know what you think um, would be what they could do because they do have guidelines for their users um, about flippancy, vitriolic comments, and they do have moderation that's going on 24-7 for you know, comments as they come up and they're very conscious of the comment is free, you know, in terms of watchful eyes are always on that, that blog specifically. Um, and the whole role that I, that I had there is to create um, more of a formula that so editors and commenters or um, contributors are, are more keen to engage below the line to create a deliberative conversation. What would, you, what would be a difference there or a change that they could do there so that you would be more likely to come below the line and uh, interact with users that are commenting? So, sorry, the specific question is what change would have to be on comment is free for any member of the panel to wish to make a comment, to leave yeah, to, a comment? to engage with the contributors that are constructive or, you know, to the users of the, the community on comment is free that's contributing below the line. Okay, well, that's a kind of open question. Who Would anyone like to answer that? Do, do, do you? You do comment. Yeah, as Ms. Marmite Lover. Um, and why so would I'm you above, not? I'm below the line. Why would you not change that to your own name at some point? Because it's a different forum, or is it because of your brand? It's, I guess it's to okay. do. I've established that as a, a brand. Okay. Will quickly, yeah. and then we're going to go to this side of the room. No, I mean I, I've had this conversation with Natalie Hammond, who's the editor of Comment Is Free. I, I mean I think I take quite a hard line view on this, which is I would like to see it going away from or trying to move away from an anonymous approach. But I also think the Guardian could be even stricter in its interpretation of what is abusive. I still think there's a huge amount of, um, you know, a, a, what I think is abuse that gets through the moderation. It's sort of tone of voice as it, much it, it, as practical It's completely its tone of voice, and they've got, to, yeah. they've got to change the culture. I think, you know, Sergey, you would um, perhaps say, having looked at this in great detail for The Guardian, The Guardian are aware that they have an issue here. I think there's a debate about how far you go. I just think they need to go much further. But what is absolutely key is if you are writing for comment is free, even though it's abusive, you must go below the line. Because the one thing that responding to people's comments does is it humanises you. And it means and quite often after that, the abusers go away and you actually get into a proper civil engagement with you know, two or three people who are commenting and taking the argument seriously. Dorothy Parker once memorably commented that the Calvin Coolidge needed uh, humanising because he looked like he was weaned on a pickle and was devoid of any uh, 
maybe he should maybe he would have enjoyed the Twitter era now comments when he, when he died someone said how could they tell yes <laughs> <laughs> sir who are you what are you yeah, saying John Denton and BBC we're seeing huge growth in video online I'm just wondering from the panel's experience how they see the balance between text and video in blogging and whether that's going to affect how that's going to affect things going forward we're doing um, uh, via Britmums we're doing a big push with uh, video in that we have um, we have a group a small group of bloggers who are interested in it and we're helping equip them and teach them you know quality I mean I think uh, I mean video is the next kind of big thing I hate that phrase but you know that it's it's in some places like uh, fashion blogging they're like it's already here I, you know everybody does it. Um, in our area, less so. I think um, everyone's just learning and learning what it means to to create good content. So not just somebody turning on their camera and talking for you know 12 minutes about something really boring. Um, but that's becoming easier and easier. You know, if you with the cameras, you know, especially with Macs, you know, the way you just plug in, it's very easy to use their software. Um, so. I think more and more we're going to see that. And then not only content producers creating video, but then people responding via video and you know, posting their own video response conversations as well as the kind of talking head to the camera. If I can just make an observation from EI's point of view, we, and, and I think this reflects the points that you're making, that this era of opinion sharing in social media is multi-platform. I mean, we actually use print quite a lot, quite unusually. Um, the latest report is out in print, but it's also available on PDF. But we've been doing, you know, a little EITV YouTube track channel, and we've podcast everything since our inception. And, you know, it seems that part of what's happening is there's a shift in the expected dimension at which you take your media. It's no longer a solo medium. And even if you do only communicate in one medium, it can be replayed in a different medium. For example, the difficulties Ed Miliband got into by doing a TV interview based on pretty standard rules in the beltway of the Westminster Village. But in fact, it, on YouTube, he, he looked like a robot and was then named a robot on Twitter. He was, in fact, doing something pretty standard. But in this era, what is standard can be made to seem perhaps for what it is, which is, you know, not, not good. Sir. Yeah, um, Nidish Parikh, uh, Nokia. So, rather provocatively, um, uh, so commoditization of uh, communication uh, through social networking, on the one hand, yes, uh, it has meant uh, proliferation of information, um, uh, obviously, but uh, I would argue that uh, quite a lot of the uh, contribution and uh, the the readers and writers, uh, a lot of that tends to be rather polemic and uh, people are naturally drawn to the views that they already have. So from that point of view, um, it's, uh, I wonder just how much uh, new learning there is uh, through these interactions. And uh, in that sense, uh, uh, hasn't information been devalued a little bit? Gosh, that is the $64,000 question. Has information been devalued? No. Uh, actually, there was uh, an interesting um, conference in Dublin last month, uh, I, I think, 
the, the, it was sponsored by Google, and it was about ideas and, 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 and technology. And uh, what they did, they brought together former, former uh, white supremacists, uh, uh, Islamists, um, and, 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 and uh, gang members, uh, and, and, and they, they conversed with them. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting mix. Uh, and and, and uh, they conversed with them about the use of technology and h- how can you actually affect opinions. Uh, and, and, for example, a few of the suggestions were, um, as far as video games are concerned, so um, you know, encouraging the creation of video games where rather than, 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 than subjecting uh, your uh, adversary to the most uh, um, horrific treatment, you would convince him or her to to disarm, uh, maybe to come up with something which is called, uh, that's the Islamist view, uh, wiki Quran, when you would give alternative interpretations to certain, you know, people who are looking for for, for answers rather than, technology can give you easy access to alternative, well, good and bad alternative alternative, uh, interpretations. Well, can... You give your view on that, but also in the context, we have Mark um, Lewis, the Dowler family lawyer in a taxi a couple of minutes away, going to brief us on where he's got to. I mean, it seems to me that the whole hacking scandal is around a fundamental um, ripping up of rules regarding information, that someone's private grief is deemed not just in the public interest, but but kind of information that should be shared... So what, what does that actually mean in terms of society, actually? Well, I don't think we should glorify the objectivity of the mainstream media. I mean, you know, there are some parts of the mainstream media, like the BBC, that you know, seek to be objective. Um, but, you know, what, what is objectivity? We all have a set of values. We all have a place that we're coming from. Um, do you I, mean we shouldn't glorify it, or do you mean that we shouldn't believe we shouldn't pretend that it exists? We shouldn't, pretend, we shouldn't pretend that it exists, right. because it doesn't. And okay. so I hope, I mean, you know, it is certainly clear that, you know, in the array of what's on the internet, there's a load of absolute twaddle. But, and this answers your question at the start about evidence-based blogging, we endeavoured at Left Foot Forward to support our arguments. I don't, you know, don't claim that we always do that, but using links, using the power of the web to link to source material, whether it's data or, you know, testimony from somebody else, we, we've tried to build up an argument to our audience. Uh, what I hope the internet will do is make people more questioning about the source of the information that they're getting and to think, you know, who said that? Is that accurate? Is that true? Is that the right interpretation? And that because people, and you know, you talk to people about Wikipedia, I I think it's a myth when people say some people think that what's on Wikipedia is always true. I don't think people do and I think the fact that so much is sourced and that things say citation needed makes people question whether that is accurate. If that kind of mode that I think we're getting into with new media could be transmuted into people's interpretation of old media, I think we're in a much happier place. If you ask the question, what acts has this publication got to grind, then that gives you a much better sense of whether that information is accurate in the first instance. But then you're into all sorts of complex territory, aren't you? Such as whether the BBC's reporting of the hacking scandal is in any way related to the fact that it politically objects to the uh, takeover bid by News International. And the BBC would argue it doesn't and it's separate. I mean, you can't have absolutes, or can you? Well, I think you have to keep on asking these questions. And, you know, I mean, I think the the idea that the BBC is absolutely 100% objective in every single story it publishes just cannot be true. Okay, so you're sort of outing the BBC's <laughs> obvious, so, alleged. And, and sometimes, lack they go of... to, sometimes they go to extremes. So, for the climate okay. change debate, for example, where 99% of the world's scientists believe that climate change uh, is man made, uh, 
Well, 99% of the world scientists do. Not all of them. 99% of them do. Well, we could have a conversation about this afterwards. All right, we have a veracity yeah, charge yeah, yeah, yeah. from uh, Commander Parrott. I'll, I'll, I'm happy to back that up. But um, they insist that in every objective debate that they have, every objective debate that they have on the BBC about climate change, they have somebody from the climate-denying or climate-sceptic camp uh, going up against somebody from the scientific so camp. If there's it, a, it's absurd. If there's a tension between anonymity and actually kind of, you know visibility qua narcissism that everyone wants to be noticed you've also then got this tension between opinion and fact haven't you and you know you are doing what with your blogging and your writing you're blending aren't you fact and opinion and and what I, i don't blog about anything i personally haven't witnessed um, I mean, on my non-food blog, for instance, I wouldn't, if I was talking about a political situation, I would not blog about it generally. I would only do it if I'm documenting something I've experienced. So it's anecdotal. So it is subjective. It's my experience. But it's based on reporting of, of the facts as I've experienced But them. if you're, I mean, Jennifer, if the facts as you observe them is that you have a relationship with a brand that is sponsoring you to try their products and to comment on them, then isn't that perilously close to match-fixing that you are going to be observing with, a, with an entirely biased eye? Well, I think there's I mean, this... Where's, the, where's that well, cut-off point? I, th- there, there, I had two thoughts about kind of what we're just talking about. I mean, one, in terms of that, I mean, do we really think that every... Um, beauty magazine editor pays for all the products that they test. No. You know, do we think that... But does that, is that different from endorsing a product that's paid them? Well, it has paid them just through advertising that then goes through to their paycheck. No, but I think that there's, there's this idea... And receiving also, a sample isn't the same well, as... No, but, yeah, but this, for bloggers, for bloggers, the same thing as journalists. I mean, if a company comes in and says, we want you to write about our water, and here's our water, and we're paying you X amount for that, that's an advertorial. That's an advertorial, whether you're in the right. newspaper business or the blog business. And we do not encourage our members to do that. We would not be involved with something that's paying for content in that way. I think there's this idea has grown up that if a, if a blogger gets something free, that means their, their content, their opinion on it is somehow tainted in a way that a journalist isn't, which I think is a very naive way to look at journalism. I mean, having been in journalism for more than a decade... So I think there's that. Um, but also, going back to this idea of um, the way people think about the conversation online, I don't think there's anyone who's been in the online world for any amount of time that hasn't been the subject of, you know, whatever. Uh, not necessarily a campaign against them, but, you know, where somebody will make a comment and other people join in and because it's on Twitter or because it's on Facebook or because it's your blog and suddenly loads of people pile into the comments section, the way that that kind of, someone makes an assertion and the way that snowballs has become, one, the way we think about, has given the internet, I think, a bit of a bad name because we've come to expect that. But I also think that um, that that shows that, you know, 
none of us are kind of free from being criticised and also maybe from being unfairly criticised. Thank you. Well, we're going to reach our wrap-up conclusions now before our final newsworthy speaker before the brown bag lunch. I can see the brown bags ahead. (laughs) So I would like to uh, quickly ask whether any other member of the audience has an absolute burning yearning to say something they can't say, you know, one-to-one. Anyone burning yearning point to make? Good. That was the right answer. Could you just sum up briefly what your, as the Americans call it, your takeaways are from this panel? Are you um, of the same opinion about the importance of uh, what we called the blogosphere, or has it morphed into something else? What's your I, I, I mean, I remark? think the internet is not, you know, that's going to carry on, and it may be carry on. It might be Twitter. I mean, my 17-year-old daughter, she's using Tumblr, and they're all really getting onto Tumblr. So it's going to change. The, the platform's going to change. But the internet and, you know, the democratisation of commenting on anything and writing, is, that's not going to change. And I think, I think it's a positive thing for the future, personally. Thank you. No. I... From one lawyer on the... Yeah, I, I, of another speaking. I, uh, I, I, agree, I, I agree with Kirsten. I think uh, that we... we and, 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 uh, that's probably a comment to, to the last discussion that we just had, uh, or feed that we just had. Uh, we, we should, or I think it's helpful to bear in mind that there is a difference in the end of the day, that's my view, between a personal blog and a newspaper in terms of the checks and balances that you have in the case of newspapers. So, so you should not trust a newspaper full, 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 uh, um, you know, with your eyes closed. Uh, I, I accept that. But you, 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 you should take into account the fact that they have a system uh, of checks and balances that, with, at least with some blogs, you can't, you can't, you, you can't really know where you stand. Um, so, yeah. So there's more Wild Westery out in the Absolutely, Wild West yeah. than in and the, it's good uh, in the OK yeah. Corral. Jennifer. Yeah, um, I mean, I think the blogging world is just going to continue to grow uh, because of what I mentioned earlier, this kind of, you know, it's extending beyond its kind of first converts. And um, I think also how we, what we define as a blog, you know, is it one person writing? Is it a bunch of people writing? Is it um, an aggregator like a Huffington Post? You know, those are, are those blogs or not? Um, well, we could debate that, but basically the blog is part of kind of media diet is here to stay. And Will, Well, I mean, I think this is... Actually, I wasn't going to talk politically, but um, I think this is, you know, this is general. I mean, you know, this is the start of a journey. Uh, You know, I mean, social media, the internet, we're only sort of 10, 15 years into this, and it's going to continue changing with a rapid pace. And as Kirsten says, the platforms will change. But the mistake is to think that this is something that is primarily a middle-class, southeast-focused medium. It's not. Uh, I learnt this morning that the biggest concentration of Facebook users in the country is Sunderland. Uh, and the second most active uh, group of people on Facebook after um, young people are pensioners. Wow. So this, this is everywhere. Well, I'd like to thank the panel and thank you for a really good session. Thank you.